Second uh, Kings chapter two. Second Kings two, and we'll read verses one through eighteen. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, and as they both, as they both were standing by the Jordan... Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, 
And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Let's also turn to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through chapter 12, verse 2. The author is finishing his summary of the lives of faith throughout the Old Testament, and he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So far, the word of the Lord. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning is First King, is Second Kings, chapter two, verses one through fourteen. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when there are no prophets left? That's what we sang about in Psalm seventy-four. There's no signs. No prophets left, and it starts to look like God is abandoning his people and his land. Well, that's what Elisha was going through, and you see that in the verses that are before us. The prophet who wrote this chapter, possibly even could have been Elisha himself, he wants us to understand and to to feel what this day was like for him and for the prophets of his day. And we should, we should get our heads into where their hearts and minds were at. We, we read Hebrews 11 also for that purpose. It tells us of the faith of, of the saints who have gone before during the time of the Old Testament. And it calls us to consider their faith, to think about 
their faith and the, the struggles that they endured. And, and then it calls us to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith as well as theirs, and then to pick up the baton and run the race of faith ourselves. Well, that's how we're going to approach this chapter also then this morning. We want to try and get our heads into their story, into their times, to be able to understand their faith so that we can learn from the faith that Christ had worked into their hearts to be able to run that race with that faith ourselves also today. Well, you can certainly feel the tension in this chapter it's written, especially from the perspective of Elisha, you notice that it, it stays from his perspective, so he gets to hear what the sons of the prophets are saying, and he gets to hear what Elisha says to him, and what happens after Elisha is gone. And you get a glimpse of, of the sadness, and the fear, and the concern that was so deeply felt by the whole group that's called the sons of the prophets. That's the believing community of that time. Well, everyone knew apparently that Elisha or excuse me that Elijah was leaving. He had actually asked for this a long time ago if you remember way back in 1 Kings 19 after he was on the run from Jezebel and he said, "Lord, they've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left and they want to take me now too." And and his prayer was that God would take him instead. Well, now that day was coming. God was going to honor that prayer and take Elijah home. You notice there's a, a journey that Elijah is taking. And that journey itself is important. It communicates an important message. He starts in Gilgal, in the heartland of the northern kingdom. Then he journeys down to Bethel. And then from Bethel, he journeys out to Jericho. And then from there to the far side of the Jordan, in other words, out into the wilderness. <clears throat> well, to anyone who, who knows their Israelite history well, that, that journey is communicating a message. Elijah, the bearer of the word of God, the prophet of God, was reversing the course that the Israelites had taken into the land of Israel. The word of God was leaving the land was undoing the conquest of Canaan. And so you can understand the concern that you see in the, in the minds of the sons of the prophets. We can only begin to understand the thoughts going through Elijah's head. Uh, there are some, I should mention this now, there are some theological questions about uh, what, what happened with Elijah. Was he did he die when he was taken up? Or was he like Enoch? If you remember um, one of the first people that ever lived, Enoch was taken up without ever experiencing death. Uh, is that what happened with Elijah? And if so, how does that reconcile with the fact that God requires death as the wages for sin? How can Elijah escape death? And, and moreover, on top of that, you notice that Elijah also reappears later in, in the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus is taken up on the mountain. And then Elijah and Moses appear, and Elijah is there evidently in his body. It seems to suggest that Elijah was in heaven 
with his body, although it also raises the question about Moses, uh, which is another interesting story because we know Moses died, and yet angels fought for his body. That's what Jude, the book of Jude, tells us. And so it seems that Moses also somehow had his body in heaven. Well, the best that we can tell from this text without answering all of the theological questions is that Certainly Enoch was taken up without seeing death. That much is is clear from the book of Hebrews. And Elijah seems to have been taken up in the same way. But they both still experience something like the experience of death, being taken from this earth, taken away from their earthly lives, and, and now living in heaven in their bodies. So unlike the rest of the saints, they have bodies in heaven uh, and, and there they are. It's not all that unlike the experience of death. But whatever exactly happened, we shouldn't think of it as an easy time for Elijah. It was still an experience of being taken away from this earth, from everything that he knew. He, he also had to lay down his office and role as a prophet. And, and he would soon be standing before Almighty God. All of that is, is something we can relate to. It was an experience not unlike death. He had asked God before to let him go, and now that time had come. Whether he still wanted it or not, he was going to go. God was going to take him, and he would soon be standing before him. And so we can sense some of Elijah's own struggle. If you're reading through this and trying to get into their heads, You can sense some of Elijah's struggle during this time as well. Three times he asked Elisha to please stay behind because he wanted to make this journey alone. And if you think about it, you can understand why. In in many respects, as Elijah looked back on his earthly ministry, it would have looked to him like a failure. Israel had not repented. The people had not uh, been brought back to God. Uh, And his ministry was beset with his own weaknesses and failures. If you think again of the time when he was fleeing from Jezebel and how he threw up his hands in despair and complained to God that he was the only one left. Uh, He he looked back on his ministry and, and he certainly saw a lot of his own weaknesses and failures. And now he's about to stand naked, as it were, before the throne of God. And who knows how you're going to react when you stand before the throne of God, especially when you look back on a, on a life that's filled with mistakes and imperfections. And so we can understand that Elijah just wanted to be alone during that time. He didn't want to have a, a person following him around and asking him questions when he didn't know the answers himself. Well, we can sense the tension and, and the anxiety also in the believing community, the sons of the prophets, This is our first encounter with that group called the the Sons of the Prophets. We'll look more closely at them next week, so I won't get into too much detail about who they are. But we can tell that they were certainly anxious about Elijah's departure. They asked Elisha several times, Do you know that the Lord is going to take Elijah away from you today? And, And Elijah knows it, and he says, Shh, just wait, and you'll see. Be quiet. Well, you can try and step in their shoes and think about what this day would have really been like for them. Elijah, after all, was all that they had. He was the prophet from God. He was the one who brought the word of God 
openly to the entire nation. He was the one who had the courage to stand before kings and the power to, and was able to wield the power of God, sending fire down from heaven. If you think about uh, 1 Kings 18, burning up the sacrifice on, on Mount Carmel. And so for the church of that day, imagine what it was like to lose your leader, to lose the, the foremost prophet of God. Elijah was their reason for believing that the kingdom would grow. He was their only reason for hope. It was under him that the church had grown. Now what are they going to do without him? And they all would have wondered the same thing as they saw Elijah going from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then across the Jordan. And they would have wondered, is God leaving us? Is God abandoning the church? And what's going to happen to us once Elijah is gone. And so we can feel the, the anxiety in the air as, as they come from every city to, Elijah, to Elisha asking him, do you know that the Lord's going to take away your master? Apparently none of them actually dared to speak to Elijah to his face about this, but everyone was thinking the same thing. What's going to become of the church? Well, Elisha tells them simply to be quiet. He knew it, of course. He, he knew what everyone else knew, that the Lord was going to take his master away. But what, after all, was he supposed to say to the sons of the prophets? He didn't know what was going to happen once Elijah was gone. And Elijah, his master, certainly didn't need to hear all the whispering. And so he simply tells them to be quiet. But at the same time, what I see in Elisha, and, and what I hope you can see as well in this chapter is that underneath it all, there's an amazing persistence of faith in Elisha. Don't miss how hard it would have been to hold on to your faith during a time like this. They didn't know what we know. They didn't know how God would continue to build the church. They didn't know how God was going to keep on working through Elisha and through the other prophets. They, they look a lot like the disciples looked after Jesus ascended into heaven, sort of looking up and bewildered and wondering, what now? What's going to happen now? How do we go on without our leader? And yet you can see that Elisha knew his calling, and he seems to just hold on to that calling, even in a time of so much uncertainty. Three times he refused to obey Elijah's command to stay behind at Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And he says he swears an oath each time, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. It's a vow made in the name of the Lord. He, he knew, he recognized, even if Elijah didn't want to acknowledge it, he knew that the Lord had called him to carry on the task that Elijah had. And for that moment, that was all he knew and all he was able to hold on to, and yet he did. He didn't let the fear and the very reasonable uncertainty shake him from what he knew was his calling in that time. He knew Elijah was going to be called away, and he, like everyone else, didn't know what to make of that. And yet he knew that his place was to stay with Elijah until Elijah was gone. Well, so brothers and sisters, we do well to step here into Elisha's shoes and to consider Elisha's faith in a time like that. He didn't know what the Lord would do, what trials would come, how, how the church would possibly hold together, and yet 
He knew his task. He knew the step right in front of him. He knew what God was calling him to do next. And so he remained devoted to the task that God had given him. That's all the more impressive because we get the impression really throughout the, the, the time between First Kings 19 and now, uh, when Elisha became Elijah's right-hand man, we get the impression that Elijah was really never too enthusiastic about having Elisha there in the first place. Right from chapter 19, uh, when he was commanded to go and, and anoint uh, Elisha as his successor, Elijah never did anoint him. He, God told him to go get him, so he went out there to Elisha in the field, and he threw his cloak on him instead of anointing him. And so Elisha got the message. The Lord had prepared him for that. But he never got the affirmation from Elijah that he was supposed to follow him. And even when he, he simply asked Elijah if he could say goodbye to his father and mother, Elisha said, well, what, what have I done to you? Go back then. He, he didn't want him there in the first place. Elijah seems to have resented Elisha's presence. And now you see that also in Elijah's final hours. He prefers to be alone. He doesn't want Elisha with him. And yet Elisha knew that that was where he was called to be. He knew he had to stay by Elijah's side. And so with all the the fear and uncertainty that the church is experiencing and the lack of faith really on Elijah's part towards Elisha, it's amazing that Elisha knew what God wanted him to do and would not let go of that calling. It was faith that kept him at Elijah's side. It was the knowledge that God was preparing him to carry out a task that only God could equip him to do and that this was where God wanted him to be right now. So if we want to learn from this text, we have to sort of put ourselves in Elisha's shoes and and from that perspective to recognize the the depth of his knowledge of, of God's calling for him and God's task that God had prepared for him. Well, when they crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Well, Elisha already knew exactly what to ask for because he knew what God was going to ask him to do. And so he said, Let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, we should understand this, this uh, request rightly. Elisha was not asking for twice, twice the amount of the spirit that, that Elijah had. Um, what he was asking for was the inheritance of a firstborn son. That, that phrase, twice the portion, uh, is, is, is a common phrase used in that time to refer to the, the, the sons, the firstborn son's inheritance. And so that's what he's asking for. Treat me as your son and give me your inheritance of the Spirit. And here again we see Elisha's faith. And, and Elijah himself recognized it. He says, you've asked a hard thing. It wasn't what Elijah was expecting. And Elisha knew that he had asked a hard thing of the Lord. And yet he also knew that was the thing that he needed to do what the Lord was asking from him. Maybe it seemed like a crazy thing. It probably would have to all the other prophets to ask for the spirit that God had given to Elijah. But he knew that was the thing he needed to ask for, and so he asked for it. And so Elijah promised him, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, then you shall have it. But if you do not see me, then it shall not be so. Well, since 
And that's, that, that uh, qualification is, is, of course, necessary because it's the Lord who ultimately gives the Spirit. Even Elijah was not able to give that Spirit. So he gives a, a test by which uh, the Lord can declare whether Elisha will have uh, the Spirit. And again, you see the uncertainty of that time, even to, to the last minutes of Elijah's time on earth. Elisha is wondering, will I? Will I receive the Spirit? Am I going to see Elijah as he's taken away. And, and so you see Elisha's faith also in him taking the next step, uh, even when he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. Well, verse 11 tells us that, that the two of them went on talking for a time. We don't know whether that was for you know, minutes or hours, uh, but we can imagine that uh, they talked about, about many things. I get the impression, and this may be just me, uh, that neither of the two of them were really saying exactly what they were thinking. And the reason I say that is because when the time comes that Elijah is suddenly taken away, Elisha cries out suddenly, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It seems like it all just sort of broke loose in that last minute. Elijah didn't want to talk about his departure. Elisha didn't want to talk about it to the, the sons of the prophets. And then you get this, this scene where the two of them are just walking and talking, and you wonder, what are they talking about? But when Elijah's taken away, that's when Elisha finally cries out with what's on his mind. Maybe you've had a, a similar experience with with the passing of a loved one, uh, when you know it's coming, and, and you just keep on delaying saying the most important things. And then suddenly, when it's almost too late, then the, the dam sort of breaks open, and, and you say what's really on your mind. Well, that's, that's what we see, something like what we see here with Elisha. Neither of them wanted to talk about what the Lord was about to do until suddenly the Lord was doing it. And when, when Elisha uses that phrase, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, he's not referring there to the chariots of, of fire that separated uh, him and, and Elijah. He's referring to Elijah himself. And we know that because a few chapters later, someone else uses the same term uh, for Elisha. So he's calling Elijah the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That's the name that he gives to Elijah, and it shows how, how highly he esteemed him. No prophet had ever existed before like Elijah. And even in all the suffering that the church was facing and the persecution, they still had Elijah. He was like their army, like, their, their, like God's army of chariots and horsemen uh, enfleshed in one person. And, and now God was calling that prophet away. And it seemed like God was taking from the church its entire spiritual army in the man Elisha. The only force for good that was left in Israel was being taken away. And so the grief and and the distress and the anguish of the entire church is expressed in those words as Elisha looks up and sees the power of God being taken away and cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then Elijah was gone, and Elisha was left all by himself. Verse 12 tells us, He took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in pieces. This was his anguish at the, at the loss of his leader. We can see his grief 
at the loss of the prophet Elijah and, and really the entire church's grief. But then once again, we see Elisha's faith in that time. He had seen Elijah go, and so he knew that according to Elijah's promise, he would receive the same portion of the Spirit. And that inheritance now needed to be taken up by faith. And that's what Elisha does. He takes up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen to the ground, and he struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Certainly the question that the whole church was asking at that time. But even in his distress and his grief, he exercises his faith. And God answered that prayer of faith. Just as he had been promised, the Spirit came on him in power in the same way that the Spirit had come on Elijah. And the water parted and Elisha crossed the Jordan. He had asked a hard thing, as Elijah said, and he had received that hard thing from the Lord. And so Elijah, Elisha began his ministry in the power of God through faith. Brothers and sisters, consider well the faith of God's people in that time, especially in Elisha. This is what faith, even in the midst of grief and uncertainty and fear with good reason for fear, this is what faith looks like. He remained committed during Elijah's life to the one to whom he'd been called to serve. And when Elijah left, he wept, but he did not lose heart. He knew what his calling was, and he boldly stepped forward, trusting God to empower him for that calling. As I consider Elisha's faith in that moment, I can't help but compare him to uh, the disciples. I don't know if you had this thought, but the disciples of Christ, when they watched uh, Christ being taken up at the end of, of Luke and in the first chapter of Acts, and the Lord Jesus had told them that he was going to leave, just like uh, with Elisha and the, and the sons of the prophets. They knew that he was going to leave. But you can tell that they still didn't get it. They didn't understand or they just weren't ready to accept it because they didn't understand God's plan. And so even in Acts 1, uh, they ask him, is it at this time that you're now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after he told them, no, he's, he's planning to leave. And the Lord Jesus simply told them, it's not for you to know the seasons, the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. There's that uncertainty. There's that you don't get to know what's going to happen next. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. What a huge calling that God had given to these small, frail, 12 disciples. And then verse 9 tells us, in in Acts 1, verse 9, it says, After Jesus had said these things, they were... As they were looking on, he was lifted up from their sight, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Just like Elisha, that's all they knew what to do, looking into heaven, sad, confused at the loss of the Lord leaving them. And just like the sons of the prophets in in Jericho, if you remember the the ending of of the part that we read this morning, just like the sons of the prophets, they, they wanted to go looking 
for him. They're, they're looking up into heaven, hoping that, you know, maybe the cloud's going to move and then there he'll be again and maybe he'll come back down. All they can do is look up into heaven. But they were not called to look up into heaven. They were called with a task to work here on earth, to begin a new conquest of the kingdom, just as Elisha would do as he crossed in, across the Jordan, beginning that conquest all over again. That's what the disciples also were now called to do. And that's what we see Elisha doing, crossing the Jordan, entering the land, sure of his calling given to him from God. And for that task, just like Elisha and just like the disciples, they were given the promise of the Spirit to equip them to carry that task out. And here's why it's so important for us to learn from Elisha's faith. Because Elisha here recognized what the apostle or what the disciples initially didn't recognize that he had a task to do and that God was going to give him what he needed for that task. When you find the disciples in Acts 1, they're, they're confused, they're, they're meeting together in, in small rooms, they're not sure what to do. Elisha is sure of what to do. He grabs the cloak, of, the cloak of Elisha, of Elijah, hits the Jordan, and crosses into the land. And it begs the question, what about us? Do we know the calling that we have received from God, and are we prepared to take it up in faith? Are we more like the disciples huddled around and waiting, or are we more like Elisha taking up our calling in strength and in power? We are called to labor here in Alora, in our own lives, in our own struggle against our sin, in our homes, to build homes that reflect the kingdom of Christ, to build the kingdom of Christ in our businesses and in our communities, to be his witnesses. We inherit that calling also that the disciples receive, to be his witnesses from, uh, from, Judea, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, the disciples weren't going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth themselves. That's a calling we've received from them. We have this calling from Christ. How do we take it up? Do we share the same faith that God had worked in Elisha? It would be very easy for us to react exactly the same way as the disciples, to say, Lord Jesus, do you really need to leave why can't you return right away? Why can't you restore the kingdom of Israel right now instead of later? Why do you have to leave us in this intervening time? But that was not God's plan. And there the Lord Jesus would have the same words for us that he had for his disciples. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's not God's plan for us. He has a purpose for this intervening time before Christ returns. And that purpose includes our labors and our love and our sacrifices in the places and jurisdictions that God has put us. We can look up to heaven and cry out that God has stripped away from us the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And we're left now without any power. But Christ has given us his spirit and Christ has given us a calling and a promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Really, in many ways, our times are not even as dark as the times that Elisha faced in Israel. Christ is ascended. Christ is risen. Christ is reigning 
over the earth. His church is taking root in this world. And if you look over the last 2,000 years, his church has grown and kingdoms have been conquered. And yet this age is, is of course, not without its challenges. The, The church is called to advance the name of Christ by being a witness to the nations. And Christ has told us already that's going to involve suffering. There will be persecution. There will be resistance. Satan hates having his, t- his territory taken away from him. There will be suffering. And we know that that suffering is part of God's plan for the building of his kingdom. And, and the truth is, there is, we recognize there is still so far for the kingdom to go. There are not only still billions who do not know the name of Christ, who are still lost in darkness. And there are indeed millions even right here in Ontario. But even in this church, there's still far for us to go. And when you look around and, and you recognize that, it doesn't take long to recognize that, it can be discouraging. It seems there's so little faith. And, and there's times where we ask God, or we ask ourselves, is God even with us anymore? We see so much failure, so much weakness, so much uh, worldliness, even within the church. So little faith, even within ourselves, if we're honest. And, and we don't see how God can still be working through us. And we're left wondering, has God taken away his power from us when Christ went up into heaven? Has God left us on our own? And the enemies of the church, they look so big. And they are big. They are threatening. And our own struggle against uh, sin and the devil and the world and our own flesh can be so serious that we don't know how God could possibly still be working through us. And the church, the church that, that genuinely does love the Lord, where we do see faith, even that still sometimes seems so small, so frail, uh, You certainly uh, see that not only here, but also on our mission fields, tiny churches scattered in different communities. And you wonder, how do those believers keep it up? How do they go on in faith? Well, they go on in the same faith that you see here in Elisha, knowing that God has called them out of this world to be witnesses to Christ, to carry that faith forward, to take up the mantle of their calling and to go forward, knowing that Christ will never leave them, will never forsake them. And we need to have that faith ourselves also. Also, It's easy to be discouraged, to look at the church and to look at our land and to wonder uh, what, what God could possibly do with the hand that we've been dealt. And yet, we need to recognize that Elisha was in, in even a much more darker, a much darker place. And he could sense his own inadequacy probably even more than we could. And yet we see him faithfully committed to his master, aware of his calling from God and ready to take that calling and put it into practice. We see him boldly standing before the Lord and asking for a portion of the spirit that he knew he was going to need to carry out the task that he was given. There's bold prayer is part of that faith. And then when the time comes, we see him then going forward in faith. Sometimes it seems that it's in the darkest of times, in the worst 
chapters of, of redemptive history that the faith of God's people stands out all the more clearly. Even when they don't know what's coming and when they know that much of what is coming is not going to be easy, yet they still knew their God, hoped in him, and set out in faith in their very dark time. How much more then in our time can we take up that faith since Christ has died and has risen again and now reigns and now we can see over the last thousands of years his kingdom building work. We don't even live in as dark a time as Elisha lived. We live in the age of the church where Christ's kingdom is going forward victoriously. How much more should we take up the calling that God has given us knowing he will not leave us or forsake us. He will give us the spirit that we need for the task that he has given us. And that's what you eventually see, too, in the disciples of Christ on the day of Pentecost. Though at first they were a small group huddled together with the doors shut because of their fear of the Jews, yet they they did eventually receive the Spirit. And once they did, they went out to begin the conquest of Christ's kingdom. In their day... The church was still, in most places, minuscule, just as it is in in our mission fields. Tiny congregations here and there facing persecution and facing lots of internal weakness, sin and, and worldliness. Not much to look at. And yet, because they had the same spirit as was given to Elisha, just like their fathers in the faith, they took the calling that God had given them. And they began to preach the gospel, and the church grew because they knew the power of God at work in them. And so let's go back then to what we read from Hebrews 11, where he writes in in verse 32 of the the faith that's seen throughout the Old Testament and the, the mighty acts of faith that we can witness from that time. And he tells us that all of these, though they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, Because God intended for that to happen through us. That apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There's a lot in that statement in Hebrews that we have to leave on its own. It's a sermon of its own that's worth preaching. But the point is that we are now called to carry on the same task that they had begun. It's meant to be finished by us. We're called to carry on with that same faith in the same calling. And that's the point that he makes in the next couple of verses in Hebrews 12. He says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, including men like Elisha, let us in our calling lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely and run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Looking not even primarily to Elisha or Elijah or the other men of his day, but looking to Jesus because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith as well as theirs. It was Jesus who put that faith into Elisha's heart. And it was Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the worst trial of all, the cross, and despised the shame and is now seated, exalted at the right hand of God. It was Jesus, the Son of God, working in Elisha in in his time, and he was the author of the disciples' faith in their time, and he is the author of our faith in our time. And he is working, as he has been working throughout the ages of the church, as they... uh, 
as, as they broke through Europe and plowed what they called the iron fields, which is how they referred to Holland and, and to Friesland, the iron fields that do not want to be cultivated. As the church plowed through those fields, it was the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts, and it's the Holy Spirit's at work in our hearts here today in Canada, even if the fields look just as hard and rocky and full of iron as they did then. Christ has promised his spirit is with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. Even in the day of small things, when the church looks small, even with all the shortcoming and weaknesses that we experience, he will not leave us. So brothers and sisters, let us learn from the faith that we see in Elisha, but let us look ultimately to the one who's worked that faith in them and promises to work it in us as we carry the calling that he has given to us going forward in faith determined to be his witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth amen let's respond by singing from hymn 43 stanzas one through six